Greetings and salutations, and welcome to the Future of Law, Good Lawyers podcast series dedicated to exploring what is and what could be when it comes to the business of law and how we as lawyers can improve access to legal services for everyone. Each week, we interview thought leaders in the legal profession on how lawyers can evolve with the times and ultimately live more fulfilled lives. On the show today, we are happy to welcome back Ian Holloway, Dean of Law at the University of Calgary, where he has led the implementation of the Calgary curriculum, which offers a more hands-on legal education than you would typically find at most law schools around the country. Prior to this, Ian served as Dean of Law at a couple other law schools, including one in Australia. All of this to say he knows his way around the halls of academia, which is fantastic because today's show is all about the future of law school. Our discussion covers many topics, including the history of our current model of legal education, the importance of young lawyers receiving hands-on mentorship from their more senior counterparts, the cost of legal education, and whether or not the high price is necessarily a bad thing, and would it really be a good lawyer podcast if we didn't bring up some of the shortcomings of our current billable hour model? Well, fret not, because we cover that too. We always appreciate the candor and humility Dean Holloway brings to our conversation, and it was a true pleasure having him back on. If you want to hear more from Dean Holloway, you can follow him on Twitter, links in the show notes, or better yet, sign up today for the Good Lawyer Summit taking place on November 3rd and 4th, where Dean Holloway will be one of our many esteemed speakers taking the stage. The Good Lawyer Summit is a hybrid virtual and in-person event that will empower entrepreneurs and startups to level up their business while bringing together some of the brightest minds in law to reimagine a future where legal work is seen as a catalyst and not an obstacle. It's shaping up to be a great event, so make sure you reserve your free but limited tickets today. All right, that is it for me. Please enjoy today's show. Dean Holloway, welcome back to the show. How's everything going today? Oh, thanks, Matt. It's good to see you again. Uh, things are okay. Excellent, excellent. We're catching you on the precipice of a new year. And for you, it must feel a little surreal because the amount of changes that have gone on in the past 18 months, obviously, on your end, I'm sure are immense. Maybe you can just give us a quick recap of how everything went and an update of what you're expecting for the year to come. Sure. Let me say that the past year went better than I feared it might. And that may seem like I'm damning it with faint praise, but it actually went remarkably successfully. And that's a testament to uh, the colleagues I work with and to the resilience and spirit of our students. We've made mistakes. There were bumps in the road. But one of the things that we learned is that online legal education can work. It doesn't work as well as being in person. I'm not sure that it would work for a whole degree, but it's doesn't have to be a train wreck. And in fact, some students said to me that some of the courses were better than they were under the traditional system. So that was good. And we educated students and we helped them get jobs and they graduated. So it was all, all good. What we're learning now, though, as I said to my associate deans not long ago, was that it's easier to switch off a law school than it is to switch one back on again. <laughs> or maybe to put another way, it was easier to go from 60 to zero than it's going to be to go from zero to 60. Because the transition back can't be done in one fell swoop because the virus is still among us. So that's 
proving to be quite challenging. Maybe just uh, before we jump into the main topic at hand today, just maybe some lessons learned. I'd love to hear it. Like, you know, you mentioned that it wasn't quite as good, but at the same time, from what I'm hearing is that this sort of blended model seems to have some merit in some respects. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and how we can improve legal education going forward with this new model. It's a great question. I can only speak about the lessons that I learned. One of them is that humans really are hardwired to engage with each other in a human way, in a a direct physical way. So that's why I say it's not as good and I don't think it would work for for a whole degree. In fact, even in those jurisdictions where they do allow for fully online JDs or LLBs, there are a couple in Australia, there are a couple in the United States. To my knowledge, every one of them works in some regular contact, whether it's two-week boot camps or those sorts of things. Uh, So that's one thing. We're hardwired to engage with each other in three dimensions rather than two. At the same time, though, we've learned that it's possible to harness technology to be able to bring to Calgary uh, electronically people from around the world. I I had a a wonderful experience a few months ago. I spoke at a conference in India in the morning. And I had a bunch of meetings here in Calgary throughout the day. And then I spoke again in Vancouver in the evening. And of course, that wouldn't have been possible. Right. And in a similar way, we've been able to employ sessionals, part-time teachers from all over the world this past year. I and mean, it's not only cool, but it's actually uh, constructive. And, and it's illustrative, of course, of the professional world that our today's students are going to be joining. I learned that Zoom fatigue is a real thing. <laughs> um, you know, I think that... I don't know whether the the number is two hours or three hours or four hours, but there's a limit on how much constructive time we can expect students and profs and staff to spend on Zoom every day. But I've also learned that it's possible to develop relationships uh, on Zoom. Yeah, to my surprise, to my delighted surprise, our first year students who've just had their whole legal education so far has been online, have actually been able to make friends and get to know one another. And that was my biggest worry uh, this time last year was that the students would all be alienated from one another. So boy, oh boy, I was thrilled to have been disabused on that point. Absolutely. Well, first, first year law is so yeah. important for that too. You know, really so is. many lifelong friendships are developed in those first few months. And it's hard for me to imagine going through law school without having, especially first year, like second, third year, I could see having done it maybe a bit more on my own remotely. But those that first year, you're in the cohorts, or at least at U of A we were, and those are your people. And it would have been very strange and, and quite sad to not have had that experience. You know, it's true, Bright. I often say that what we learn outside the classroom is as important as what we learn in the classroom. And whether that's eating pizza with our classmates or at the pub or talking about the, you know, trying to make sense of you mm-hmm. know, the Greek that we've just read in torts or contracts is absolutely essential. But it's possible. I don't want to make light of it, but, you know, you two guys can order pizza where you are and I'll order where I am and we can (laughs) sit together and and eat and get to know one another. Not the same, but it's not a complete uh, disaster. Yeah. And just for you personally, as dean of what I think is considered a pretty damn innovative law school as far as Canadian institutions go, (laughs) I feel like a lot of people in the profession in Canada look up to you and look to see what Dean Holloway is doing. And the decisions you're making, how have you felt that pressure? 
well, they may look up to me and then say, okay, what he's doing, we'll do the opposite. And that they're probably better off. <laughs> um, no, no, listen, I, I will say, I won't lie to you. And I'll say it, it's been tough. And there've been moments, been many moments where I thought, I don't know how this is going to end. In fact, I find myself, I don't know if, if you guys are in the same situation, but I find myself, I'm, I'm still on this emotional roller coaster every day. You know, I'll read something, I'll think, okay, you know, we're getting the better of this. And we've, as long as we can get people vaccinated and we'll wear masks for a bit longer. And then I'll, so I'll feel relatively upbeat. And then I'll read something, oh my God, the Delta variant's out of control and there's the gamma variant that's coming. And, and I go, I'm up and down every single day. And that's hard, particularly when, you know, a big part of your job is to keep a smiling face and to, to try to project confidence in the future when you don't know what the future is going to be. That, that can be a challenge. And there's been a lot of tension and anxiety, and I've had sleepless nights in the, in the literal sense of the word. But there's also been moments of pride. I mean, it's just seeing our students, how resilient and, and adaptable they've been able to be. Seeing my colleagues, who a year and a half ago had to almost turn on a dime, but see them turn on that dime and, and rise to the occasion. Seeing our staff, you know, or, organizing social events and careers events and so on using media that none of us had ever heard of. A few of us had ever heard of Zoom before March of last year. And we did all that. And, and so it's been a proud time to be associated with the law school as, as well. And I'm also, I, I will say, I don't want to sound boastful, but I'm proud of how we entered this. I've forgotten if we talked about this the last time, but when this was still largely an Asian story, so back in January of 2020, I said to colleagues, I said, just out of curiosity, if we had to go online all of a sudden, what would it involve? So we had about six weeks to plan. We didn't, weren't sure what we were planning for, but you know, we were able, when we could still all be together, to think things through, to talk things through, so that when we had to pull the trigger, we were able to make the transition, literally, mm -hmm. in the matter of a, in a few hours, to go from being a fully in-person law school to being a fully online law school in just a few hours. And I'm proud that we were able to do that as well. Absolutely. I'll just say, speaking for myself from uh, working at a startup, the mere fact that everyone had enough time to actually think about something in the future mm. and not not just deal with the fires that are burning today uh, is quite impressive. And frankly, I, I'll be completely honest, until the day we went into lockdown, I was in complete denial. I did not think it was going to happen. I'm like, that's nah, not we're not it's not gonna happen in calgary it's not gonna happen yeah. in canada you know yeah. and then obviously it did so that's excellent foresight obviously mm -hmm. but just kind of switching gears here a little bit you know actually we were having a discussion about yourself and ufc in our offices a couple of days ago and we were discussing how impressed we were about not only your foresight obviously with the covid but also with your approach to redefining law school the law school experience a little bit and we did speak about this last time a little bit but you know law school for the last i'm guessing 30 40 years has followed a fairly similar path as far as the way lectures are held and the way the subject matter that's taught but UFCs, under your guidance has made a pretty decided shift to making sure that the practical aspect of the law is also being taught because Again, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I didn't learn any of that until I was actually practicing. That's when I learned the practical aspect. And it's one of my chief complaints about uh, my law school experience is that it doesn't fully teach you to actually be a lawyer. I'd love to just get your thoughts about that. What has helped you make this transition to bring a bit more of the practical aspect and how are things going with it? 
Sure. Well, th- thank you. You know, the, the, the conventional model of, of North American legal education <clears throat> dates from Harvard in the 1870s. And the Harvard model, which entered Canada at Dalhousie in 1883, so it's been around for a long time. Um, right. It's remarkably durable. It began at Harvard for, candidly, partly snobbish reasons. Hmm. It was a way of, of ensuring that the legal profession would remain the preserve of, of gentlefolk, gentlemen in those days. And to be sure, it added a lot of rigor that hadn't existed before in, in American legal education. And the Dalhousie model was developed, in, as I said, in 1883. And that reflected, of course, deep historical connections between the maritime provinces and the New England states going back to before the American Revolution. And gradually, the Dalhousie model spread across Canada. And, and it reflected a kind of a gentle person's agreement between the law societies and, and the universities. And that agreement was based upon a bifurcation of the notion of legal training, that you'd spend three years in the university setting having an academic training, an academic education, followed by a year's practical apprenticeship. So what you described, Matt, and what I experienced, what Brett experienced, what we all experienced was not a bug, that was a feature. Right. Um, But we know now a lot more about how adults learn and how adults retain knowledge than they knew in the last few decades of Queen Victoria's reign. And what we know now (laughs) is that adults learn best by, as I sometimes put it metaphorically, by rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty with ideas. In other words, we've learned, and the scientific research is unequivocal about this, we've learned that the bifurcation between theory and skills is a false one. It's a false dichotomy that the two go hand in glove. That if you want to teach someone to really understand something, you teach them how to do things. Conversely, if you want to teach someone how to do something, particularly in a precedent, historically based system like the common law, you have to teach them how it is over an accumulation of centuries, we ended up with what we've got. Why do we buy and sell houses the way we do? It's not because the forms are made up that way. It's because of a series of lawsuits dating back to the the Tudor era, the dissolution of the monasteries. So it really is a false dichotomy. And and that's why we said at at Calgary, and and I didn't start it. The roots go back to our very foundation in the the 1970s. We, We kind of drifted a bit and became more and more like the other law schools. So in a way, what we did with the Calgary curriculum was to re-embrace our roots. But we say at Calgary that our mission is to prepare students for the profession they're joining, not the one we join. And, and as our profession is changing, that means we believe that we have to change as well. And we also say that we, we want to follow the science, to use one of the phrases of the COVID era. We want to follow the science. And the science tells us that the dichotomy between theory and skills is a false one. And so that, that's why we proudly, not shamefacedly, but proudly involve practical education in almost all of our courses, because we think that by doing that, we're actually deepening our students' theoretical appreciation of what they're doing. So what does that look like in practice? It looks like a whole bunch of things depending on the course. So for example, I have one colleague who teaches criminal law. And one of the things that she does regularly is get the students to do mock bail applications. And through that exercise of getting students to stand up on their feet, mm-hmm. she is parting of a very important practical skill. And you know, it doesn't matter what 
one does with one's legal education. One has to learn to, to be able to speak and construct arguments and defend arguments. But through that very practical exercise, she's not only teaching the students about the, the law associated with bail, but about the adversary system, about rules of evidence, about the notion of civil liberties, about things like habeas corpus and, uh, and all sorts of things like that. So in, in one sense, simple, straightforward exercise, she's blending yeah. a whole bunch of different aspects of legal education. And you know, teaching I've, these future potentially criminal lawyers the bread and butter of their practice <laughs> exactly. and how to make a living. Well, how to make a living and how to serve the public. I mean, right. how, to, how to serve the public. You know, Matt, you talked about realizing when you started, you didn't know how to do anything. And, and I have that same, it, it's still, you know, scarred in my memory. I mean, the first day of our <laughs> Me too. <laughs> a lawyer coming in and saying, do this. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't learn anything in law school. I don't have, I, I don't even understand what he's saying. Yeah. And that's just not right. You know, it's not possible in three years of law school to teach someone to, to be a lawyer. I mean, the process of learning to be a lawyer is a lifelong Agreed. one. Yesterday uh, was my 35th anniversary at the bar. And I'm oh, still- congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, or commiserations, maybe. But, but, but actually, <laughs> but it is, it is congratulations. I'm very, I'm very proud of that. But it continues to be a learning process. But surely, surely we shouldn't be proud of the fact that what we do is we invite students to spend three years with us, to spend a lot of money getting educated, and then thrust them into a workplace where their initial reaction is, I don't know how to do a damn thing. That's yeah. not anything to be proud of. And I definitely found, and Matt's touched on this, my own law school experience definitely lacked practicality, very theory heavy, which I found really interesting and sort of changed the way that I thought about problems. And that was first year, but the next two were still so theory heavy. Then you get into practice and there's still no training. There's no training anywhere. It's just like, figure it out. Hopefully you, you, know, you make fire. a friend who will give you some time, but there was no formality at any point from my perspective on how to be a corporate solicitor. At yeah, any no, point. no. That, that's a, it's a fair criticism of the conventional system. And, and of course, one of the things that law societies across the country, particularly in Alberta, that we should be proud that our law society is playing a leading role in this, is as we speak, you know, rethinking, or at least thinking about the future and sustainability of the Articling system as we all knew it. Yeah, you know, just kind of what you were saying there about the importance of the practical aspects. Uh, you know, I grew up playing sports, so I oftentimes default to sports analogies. But, you know, you can sit there and watch as much film and study strategy and watch on YouTube all these different clips of how drills are done until you actually do it yourself, though, you will lack that understanding at the root level of all the nuance of practice, right? Yep. And that was the thing that I found in practice is that kind of to your point before that your understanding of the theory behind it is actually bolstered by getting your hands dirty in the, the actual practical application. And it sounds like that's a principle that you're building the law school around. It is absolutely a core tenet of our philosophy of, of legal education. Now, you know, I want to be clear, we make mistakes, we're not perfect, but what makes us different is this line, this mission saying that our job is to prepare students for the profession they're joining, not the one we join. Right. And that ties to, to a point that Brett made earlier, and that is the lack of systematic training. You know, when I, I remember when I was a young lawyer, maybe my second year, the first time I appeared in the Court of Appeal on my own, 
one of the senior lawyers in the firm came along, just sat in the gallery and just watched me the whole day. And then at lunchtime and then on the way back at, at the end of the day, he, he gave me some critiques some pointers and uh, some tips. And if, I, I didn't think uh, in these terms at the time, but I now realize he forewent a whole day's billing yes. just to, 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 to be with some young schmuck like me. Our business model today doesn't easily uh, allow for that. And so that's a problem. And, and in fact, one of my worries, I will say, is that with the advances in technology, which we need to embrace because it helps us serve clients better, there is a cost. And one of the costs is that the gradualness by which we learn to be a lawyer, we learn to be you know, good lawyers uh, in those days, carrying bags, sitting in meetings, photocopying stuff, and gradually by osmosis, at least if you were paying attention, you would learn enough so that in due course, you could become a wise counselor, trusted counselor yourself. If those opportunities aren't there for young lawyers to carry bags and photocopy and attend meetings, mm -hmm. partly because of technology, partly because of the business model, how will we develop the next generation of wise, trusted counselors? You know, we can replace knowledge, but wisdom is different from knowledge. And so that's, I will say, that's one of my worries. For sure. The, the thought of a partner or a senior member of a law firm giving up a day to watch a junior member is laughable. It just, especially at the big firms, as you mentioned, the business model simply does not allow that mm -hmm. uh, anymore. And so what, you know, you've obviously been thinking about this for quite some time. Do you have any solutions to that? What would you like to see? Or is this just a problem that will uh, hang out for a while and, and something that will need to be addressed at some point? I, I don't personally have any solutions. I've got better thought out views on legal education. Sure. You'd, you'd hope I would, but yeah. also articling. But the, I'll say the wisdom issue is not one that I think I have any concrete ideas. On I do. But, 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 <laughs> but, but, but you do? Okay, well, what are they? So when it comes to the mentorship piece specifically, yeah. and I put this forward as an innovation idea when I was at the firm, and I think it went into the, the ether and Suggestion then it, 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 box. Just, yeah. it disappeared <laughs> forever. It was so simple. Mentorship at the firm that me and Matt worked at, they had a program to promote a bit of pro bono work amongst lawyers. And they had a lawyer, like a partner who was in charge of this program, and you had to complete like a one page kind of explanation on whatever pro bono work you were proposing to do. He signed off on it. And then that time was considered billable time towards your target. Mm -hmm. So you had to get proof to sign off and then you could get billable credit for pro bono work. And I just said to them, why can't we do the exact same thing for mentorship? so that we have a few of the lawyers who love mentoring people yep. getting credit for mentoring them. And you just plug it into the billable model you're already running. And it like the simplicity of it in my mind was beautiful. And it would just change how the few heavy mentoring lawyers in the firm were dealt with and they would get credit for doing this really valuable thing within the firm where right now they're just staying later because they've got a big heart and they're like helping the young bucks come through, but there's no incentive to do it within the firm structure. And to me, just twisting, giving a, you know, you need a check and balance, which is the head mentorship partner in the way I conceived it. If they sign off, now you get the billable credit, which is the be all end all. 
certainly in the big shops. And now you all of a sudden you have a, have a tool that hopefully you have more lawyers coming up through the ranks, getting properly trained. That's a great idea, Brett. The, the notion that what gets incentivized is what gets done. Yeah. And so we provide rewards for doing the kinds of things that we know need to be done. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful idea. One of the challenges, of course, is the partnership model. Because every six-minute interval that a partner is not earning money or the firm's not earning money means less dollars in my pocket at the next quarter or the next draw. And so maybe one of the things that we really need to think about is whether or not the, the partnership model should endure or, or whether or not it's actually providing the wrong kinds of incentives. It's encouraging short-termism yes. mm-hmm. in thinking. And also to relate it to that is that I don't think that as a profession, we cultivate leadership as much as we should. That we have some outstanding leaders in, in our profession, but we're just kind of lucky to have them. We don't mm-hmm. go out of our way to train them. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do at University of Calgary, by the way, is we, I think we're the only law school in this country, we certainly were when we started, that has a course on leadership for lawyers. Right. Because we know that every good lawyer is a leader. When a client comes to us, they're not necessarily coming to us because they want legal information. They're generally coming to us because they need leadership. Their world has come to an end because their marriage is broken down or they've been charged with a crime or they've been dismissed from their employment, or they come to us in in excitement thinking, I'm the next Steve Jobs. I'm the guy in the garage. And if all we do as lawyers is provide them with legal information, we're not really serving them well. And what what we really need to do is provide them with leadership skills. And so if that's the case, then then why don't we teach it? Why don't we value it as as a... profession. In fact, coming up is something that it's not part of our JD curriculum, but it's something we're quite proud of. We're running a program in conjunction with the Women in Legal Leadership, the WILL organization. And it's a leadership training program for female associates who are on the cusp of going into partnership or maybe who are looking, you know, at some point want to go in-house and end up in the C-suite. And so this is the first time we're running it. I'm sure we'll make mistakes and there'll be bumps on the road, but we're pretty excited about this. Yeah. Yeah, no question. And uh, your point on leadership is really an interesting one because my impression at uh, the law firm that we worked at, you know, was that there was uh, 130 kind of individuals and loosely together, but everyone, the billable hour and the partnership model, as you were kind of alluding to there, it seems to almost not pit one against the other, but you certainly have to look out for yourself number one. And if it happens to coincide with someone else, then perfect. But if not, like, what's your rate? It's not ever thought of as like the firm. What, how are we doing this as a group and how can we best move forward? To your point, it seems to be uh, plagued with that short-term thinking. Well, and if, if you talk to any managing partner or any chair of the law firm, they will say the worst time of the year is the compensation time. Comp <laughs> drives everything. As I, I've heard, often heard from managing partners, comp yeah. drives everything. It's understandable because that's kind of the gratification that we that we work for, but it's not a constructive way to build an organization. You mentioned that obviously you have a few more thoughts on uh, law school and mm. articling. Mm. And since that's your area of expertise, so what, what needs to change there? Like obviously you've outlined in fair detail what UFC is doing to change, but what do you see on a broader level and how can we improve articling to make it more effective? Well, if it were me, I mean, it's not me. What I would recommend, I don't think will happen, but I would get rid of articling. I I think articling is a a terrible system. 
as a system. And it's not to say that everyone has bad experience. I, I had a wonderful Arctic in the year, and I am feeling nostalgic about it right now because of anniversary reasons. But even generally, when I think about my Arctic in the year, it's a positive recollection. But I'm looking at it as a system. And there are a whole bunch of problems with articling as, as it is now. One is not every student does have a, a positive articling experience because there's no systematic or there's minimal mm-hmm. systematic structure to it. Brett's experience as, uh, you know, articling in, the, in, in a corporate group was very different from mine articling in, uh, principally in the labor group. And someone who's articling in a, in a for a sole practitioner is going to have a very different experience from someone articling at a, at a, a big law. So there, there's minimal systemic structure to it. Secondly, the Law Society has that on this, that some students not only don't get well-trained, they actually get abused. Right. But even if the Law Society wanted to police this more actively, they don't have the resources to. So we take the most vulnerable members of our profession and say, okay, you've got to be the whistleblowers. You've got to be the, the de facto police force. I mean, that's crazy. Thirdly, it pretends to a one-size-fits-all model, right? So mm-hmm. let's say I article at, at big law and I'm not kept on or I, or I decide to leave. Well, the next day, I'm mean, subject to my own assessment of my competence. I'm licensed to hang out a shingle and start doing murder trials. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's... I mean, the medical profession, you know, which, totally. which is a learned profession, gave up on that a long, long time ago. And so I think we should do so as well. And then fourthly, articling is based on a short-term spot market for legal services. So I mean, to use Alberta metaphors, if you have the good fortune to graduate when oil is at 100, um, yes. you can be the biggest dunce in the world and you're going to get an <laughs> articling position. You have the misfortune to graduate when oil is at, what was it, negative eight? Was it yes. at point last year? Yes. Uh, you could be Lord Denning reincarnate and you have a hard time. <laughs> in, in other words, there's little uh, concern paid for the medium to long-term needs of the rule of law to, to replenish our profession. And, and that's just not fair. You know, and I've talked to some lawyers in the past. I mean, most of them get it, but I've talked to some lawyers in the past. Well, that's the free market for you. You know, they shouldn't have come to law school. But remember, when someone's applying to law school, they're, they're in. Are, are we saying, okay, you've got to make a bet on what the market's going to look like five years down the road. Right. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's ridiculous. I'd like to see you, uh, you know, Mr. <laughs> law firm partner, make a bet about what, you know, your firm's client market's going to look like five years down the road. Totally. Tell and, me and, how accurate that is. So I, and I just, there's, there's this sort of, in my mind, from a business perspective, this almost unfairness, or certainly it's not overly well thought out, but putting this huge onus on busy lawyers and i'm kind of thinking of the solo lawyer who was trying to keep their head above water just running their practice and then now i'm also expected to train from the ground up because this student didn't learn any of like the you know what i mean like the student comes in pretty useless they've got some foundational theory but they can't come in and start making that solo or that partner they're not profitable for too long which again just distorts where the students end up going, how many sort of get left. Uh, well, 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 Brett, that point you just made about distortion practice. of the market, that, that's a very important one. I, I remember having a, a conversation a, a while ago with my colleague, the Dean of Law at the University of Windsor. And, and the University of Windsor has a very 
overt social justice mission. It's very important. Uh, and it's good that in Canada we have law schools with that as their substantive mission. But the problem, of course, is that we still have an articling system. And I've forgotten the number, but the magnitude will be right. Something like three quarters or four fifths of the articling jobs in Ontario are within are in the GTA. And so whether they like it or not, their students all have to go to Toronto. And disproportionately, yeah. of course, articling positions are in big law because they're the they're the aspects of our profession that can afford to take on a lot of students. So you may go to the University of Windsor because you want to do social justice law and you end up in Bay Street because that's uh, the only place where, right. you know, where you can get your ticket. And so that's another crazy aspect so, of the system. And actually that leads into the question that I absolutely wanted to ask you. And, and it kind of goes back to that access to justice issue that you're sort of alluding to mm-hmm. there. Law students routinely leave law school with, let's say, 50 to $100,000 in student debt and, mm-hmm. you know, accumulated not just from tuition, but from living costs associated with not yeah. working for three years. Obviously, it takes quite a bit of money to run a, a good institution. You need to hire top professors. You need to make sure that the curriculum is working together. And, and that certainly doesn't just happen. But does that not kind of, like you were just sort of alluding to there, does that not force students in lieu of, let's say, taking on a social justice mission mm-hmm. or trying to resolve this access to justice, does that not push them into that sort of billable our partnership model where you have to, as a student coming out of law school, you have to go get that high paying job that certainly isn't their primary mandate is not focused on uh, resolving the access to justice crisis, just simply because you have yet to pay off this debt. Do you agree with that statement or is that, uh, am I just uh, making things up here? No, no, you're certainly not making things. No, no, I, I do agree with it to, to a point. No, no question that salary has, well, I mean, money has an impact on our choice, the choices we make. No question about that. But it's not the only thing. I mean, you know, there's perceptions about glamour and the imagery that we see of the law and legal profession on TV and in movies and, and so on. So it's it's a thing, but it's not the only thing. But but embedded in it, though, is I think a deeper question. And that is, how much should law school cost? Right. You know, um, because we have a, a wide range of the cost of legal education in, in this country. The high end, we've got the University of Toronto, which is getting close to $40,000 yeah, Very year. expensive. Yeah. And uh, at the lower end, we have, I think, the University of New Brunswick, which may be eight or $9,000 a year. If cost was the issue, then you'd, you'd assume that the UNB would be flooded with applicants and no one would go to the University of Toronto. And that, as we know, that's clearly not the case. Right. So that's why I'm not, I'm a bit cynical, a bit, not, I'm not fully cynical, but a bit cynical when people say, well, you know, you're, you're driving us to employers that we don't want to go to because you're gouging us. And I said, well, you have choices and you clearly chose an expensive option. Right. Having said that, though, I'm not, I'm not trying to make excuses. One of the other things that I'm proud of at the University of Calgary is that we, we are the law school where you can study leadership and business skills and marketing and client development. We run a program, at least before the pandemic, in, in London, England. I hope that once this is over, we're going to start another one in New York City. We've got a, a joint degree program at the University of Houston. We're not the cheapest law school in Canada in English Canada, but we're maybe the third or fourth. So, so we can do all of this for about a third of the tuition that some of the other law schools are charging. So how do we do that? And I think the answer for us has been partnerships. We're able right. to do what we're able to do because of partnerships, because of the, the generosity of spirit shown by members of the bar who teach 
for us, not for free, but for pittance. It might as well be free because we don't pay them very much. <laughs> but also the volunteers who, who just very generously donate their time. So it is possible to be creative without necessarily jacking up tuition. Right. But I will say too, though, that the kind of practical education that we're talking about yeah. is more expensive than old-fashioned education. I mean, if you really want a cheap legal education, just pack 200 people in a lecture theater and just <laughs> yeah. lecture at them for three hours a week. You know, that you could do that for a few thousand bucks a year. But yeah. if you want clinics and you want hands-on opportunity, you want role-playing, you want experiential learning, that's a lot more expensive. So, yeah, and, and a few things to unpack there. And I know Brett is having to... It's probably having a minor aneurysm right now with his internet connection not being as strong as it normally is. Because I definitely know you want to jump in, Brett. So feel free, man. Uh, but I, I, I do, I do want to say one thing there, sure. uh, and maybe more plant a seed than anything else. When it comes specifically, although this could extend beyond just the business clinic, uh-huh. but I would love to explore with UFC and yourself, Ian, if there's a way that Good Lawyer could help. Because we, when it comes to the clinics. And it comes to connecting the students with the clients that are looking for their support on files and that type of thing. One way to bring the cost down dramatically is to do it over an online platform that streamlines and builds in a lot of the the efficiencies that we're doing every day for the entrepreneurs that we're helping. But would love to explore that because I know you guys are doing innovative things. Well, let's do that, Brad. In fact, let's talk about how we can involve you guys in our innovation internship program. We, we yes. uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but we just ran its first offering. We were part of a, of a North American consortium called IFLIP, the Institute for the Future of Legal Practice. And it was a North American consortium. They kind of run out of the United States and they decided to, to, to pull the plug in the pandemic. So we, we said, okay, well, we'll do our own. So we ran our innovation internship program. And it was really neat. We had a bunch of employers who, in fact, some of them were big law. In fact, the Alberta Court of Appeal was another one. Uh, but there were some tech startups and, and small law as well. And we were able to place students with these employers working on innovation, techie kind of future looking projects. And it was really cool. And we're going to try to expand it. So let's park this for now, but let's yeah. talk about this, getting you guys involved in that. But to take it back yeah. to, if, just if I may, to, to the leadership point. So we had our students do their, their final presentations the day before yesterday, uh, the culmination of their internship summers. And one of the things that really struck me was that some of our interns worked at Big Law. We had one who worked at uh, the Alberta Court of Appeal. We had some working with tech startups. And we had one working for uh, a law firm in Red Deer. And obviously four very different types of employer, but all committed, genuinely committed uh, to doing things differently so as to be able to serve uh, the public better. And I thought to myself, as I was listening to the students and and they, they all did a wonderful job, but I thought to myself, you know, what's the secret sauce? Why is it that there's one big law firm that's doing this and, and not other ones? Why is it that there's one court, uh, appellate court in Canada that's doing this and not other ones? You know, why is it that one small firm in central Alberta, sole practitioner in central Alberta, uh, doing this and, and not others? And the answer is leadership. You know, that, mm-hmm. that there, there are four 
there were more than four, but four different types of employers with different missions. But what unites them all is that they're all well-led by people who see the future. And that goes, I think, to the point you made earlier, Brett, about the absolutely critical nature of, of leadership as a component of legal education going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without question. I, and I mean, it's the foundation for really everything proceeding after it, right? So if you don't get that right, you're already in a, a pretty tough spot. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just cognizant of the time here, yeah. but I do want to get a couple final thoughts from you, sure. uh, just maybe circling back to the issue of price indirectly. But do you think that there's a government mandate to potentially uh, lower the cost of law school in the sense that obviously lawyers are a public good? If you can't access the law, you're expected to follow it. But if you can't access it in a meaningful way, that that's a detriment to society. And that, you know, there's a lot of arguments being made about that. And then also just do you see that with the pandemic happening and obviously the emergence of more of an online or the potential for an online curriculum, do you see potentially a differentiator there that maybe certain law schools will say, like you said, we're going to go hands on, but that's going to cost a little bit more versus, you know, okay, here's a fully online we can get 500 people in there, but you're going to get it for a fraction of the price. Do you see that as potentially emerging much like it, I guess it has to a certain extent in the U S and is that good? <laughs> uh, oh, well, the two different questions there. Yes. Um, I'm not sure that in Canada, I see a fully online law school emerging partly though. That's because of our regulator. I mean, remember we, we are accredited formally. I mean, our degrees are recognized by our provincial law societies right. acting in Canada today through the Federation of Law Societies. So there is a there is a degree approval committee. And one of the rules at the moment is that uh, we can't have fully online degrees. The Federation of Law Societies, they'd be open to a discussion, but they are concerned about their duty to protect the public. And so one would have to be able to satisfy them that through a fully online degree, we wouldn't be taking conventional legal education and making it worse. Right. The non-practical conventional Canadian model of legal education and making it even worse because students will zoom out. That would be the concern. But right. I do think that every law school will take advantage of this technology that we've learned how to use well. And there will be more online stuff going forward. There's no question about that. As for the question of the duty of governments to reduce the cost of legal education. Partly, I think, it depends on what we talked earlier about the incentives and incentives in the context of law firms. But what about what are the incentives to innovate in terms of legal education? Philosophically, I'm someone who believes in the market. And I believe that if the Calgary model is a better model of legal education, and we're able to communicate that to the market, we will get more students. We'll, we'll get you know, more applications and better students. And I believe that competition is a good thing. Competition makes us all better. Not competition to the nth degree, not sort of unrestrained competition, but competition within rules. You know, let's say the government said, okay, the maximum cost of legal education is $5,000 a year. What's the incentive then mm. for a law school to innovate? That's a philosophical viewpoint, sure. and there are other people who have different philosophies. But I will say, if we look at medical education, if you talk to some deans of medicine, they will say that there's not as much innovation in medical education as perhaps there should be. 
mm. partly because it's so tightly regulated by the government. You know, so for example, a number of years ago, the U of C, uh, our medical school adopted a three-year MD model. It's really neat. And, 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 and our graduates are good doctors as graduates of the U of A's medical school. And, and, and we can do it in three years. Why do they take four? Mm. Why hasn't the U of A followed? And the answer is because the government, there's no incentive to. Right. In fact, they lose, the, arguably, they might lose money um, by trying to make the model better. So I get the idea of saying that look, we don't want law schools to be able to you know, charge the moon for legal education. But I'm not sure it's as simple as saying that, well, we'll, we'll cap tuition. Right. Um, because that may lead to unintended consequences. And I will just say for the record, because I don't want anyone ever to think that I'm being two-faced about anything. I am proud of the fact that we're able to do everything we do for the, the, the cost at which we do it. We offer more than almost any other law school in this country for, uh, for a lot less than tuition dollar. But I would, if, if I had the option, raise tuition. Interesting. Well, Interesting. And, and let, me, let me say this. There's an argument that one could make, and it goes like this. It's, you know, why should an immigrant taxi driver be subsidizing the legal education? Right of someone who, you know, lives in Mount Royal and who went to uh, Strathcona Tweedsmere School. Right. How is that socially just? Absolutely. Um, I used to be the dean of a law school in Ontario, as you know, and, and at the, for a period, it was open season in tuition, but the government put a condition on it, and that was you had to set aside, I, I think it was a third or 30% of your tuition revenue for student aid. So we were able to be much more generous in student aid than we used to be when tuition was cheap. And so we were able to do, in, in essence, what the tax system wasn't doing, and that is to, to make legal education accessible to people who came from disadvantaged backgrounds. You can't do that so easily when tuition is low. Right. But uh, thank you once again. An hour just never seems like enough I know, to I talk know, about all true. these very interesting things. But we appreciate your perspective. And, and just on... Uh, I guess more of a personal note, I do appreciate your your unabounding humility, as well as your uh, willingness to talk about some controversial subjects, which I know people in your position where we sometimes want to make sure that they're not going to step on any landmines. But uh, honest talk, I, I honestly believe is how we progress. And we certainly appreciate that you're willing to address some some difficult uh, questions. Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks for saying that. You know, it's true what you say that we do need honest talk. I mean, unfortunately, we're in an era, thanks in significant measure to social media, where people are reluctant to have honest talk because, right. you know, whether someone's afraid of being canceled or whatever adjective one wants to use, but it's not a good thing. If we're going to make progress, we have to be able to make mistakes. Right. And if you're afraid of doing something or saying something or being accused of something, we'll never make mistakes and we'll never get ahead. I think that's a so the price of progress yeah. is is uh, is making mistakes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no way around it. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think we'll leave it on that point here. And hopefully we can convince you to come to our summit. And oh, I'll, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll look forward to it. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you once again for uh, coming on here. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. So <laughs> have a great weekend, much. fellas. Thank you, you so much. And you too. Uh, anytime. I, I love this. Okay, perfect. Thanks so okay. much. Have a great weekend. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. All right.
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out goodlawyer.ca slash podcast, where you'll find every episode along with the show notes and resources. You can also sign up for Good Lawyer's newsletter that keeps you up to date on all the info and tools you need to turn your business into a rocket ship. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.